0: Modern versions of d and similar games usually assume the optimal party of characters is 4 to 5, all at the same level. Early edition adventures didn't have exactly the same recommendations for how many characters and what level they should be. Uh, Kent to the Cult of the Reptile God was for 4 to 7 characters of levels 1st to 3rd, okay? The original Ravenloft adventure was for 6 to 8 characters of levels 5 to 7. And Safe 4 to Find a King was designed for 10 players of levels 4 to 7. Um... So were you supposed to start with 10 friends and then cut your friend group down to 8 and then 7? Or how was that supposed to work? Very confused. Also, don't cut your friends. Bad choice of words. there. my bad.
1: And now we present to you, Thacko with Advantage.
2: Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is encouraging me to buy more dice.
0: It really is.
2: <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome.
2: And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, Jr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs.
0: After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about all of the campaigns we've run throughout our history playing D&D. And then we're going to have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Moving right into the campaign journal, I have no games. Well, I have no D&D games I am currently running or planning to run. We'll probably look at restarting the depths of Zendrick sometime in the spring, which is really dumb of me to consider with that being the busy season for work. But there you go. <laughs> I have gotten to uh, play some D&D. Jared's going to talk about his campaign that I got to play in. Uh, but I also played in the Undermountain game, which has been straying away from Undermountain.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: in fact, uh, I don't even—we're not even close to Waterdeep anymore right now. We're way, way, way down south in a continent I don't think I've ever been on in Faerun either. Way, it's been fun. We just wrapped up the latest adventure, which involved an oracle who was actually kind of a mummy, sort of, kind of, maybe not really with a death cult thingy and wanting to harvest organs and <laughs> just, it was it was kind of cool and it was a lot of fun. We've been debating whether or not we have any desire to go back to Undermountain and instead want to do other stuff outside of it since when it comes down to it, none of our characters really have any motivation or need to explore Undermountain. It was more just, It was there and we wanted to prove ourselves. I mean, a couple of the characters had reasons, but we have since resolved those reasons. But when it comes down to it, it might be easier for the GM to keep running Undermountain because it's material that's prepared. He's got it all right there in front of him. Mm -hmm. And that is a reasonable thing to consider for your GM when figuring out what your characters want to do.
2: I mean, especially if they're going to have a harder time jumping into other content that they weren't planning, Mm -hmm. and they were kind of planning on running this thing all the way through. I know Undermountain probably has the, other than the anthologies, it probably has the least through line of a story of any of the things they've published in 5th edition, because it is just like, hey, this is what's in Undermountain right now.
0: And and one of the very cool things about it is it is, Undermountain has been a thing since forgotten realms came out mm-hmm. and you know he has been able to access older information about what is in under mountain and, you know and use different older maps and all of that stuff and it's mm-hmm. really pretty cool it's just the characters don't really have much motivation yeah but at the same time the gm is going to be moving in the next two <laughs> or three months and I'm thinking about it and I'm like, maybe we should just go back into Undermountain because that'll be way easier on him.
2: We you know we've talked about like enthusiastic consent is important, but I think if the players don't necessarily have a burning desire to do something else, it is valid to at least equally consider whether the uh, the GM is going to have a harder time coming up with stuff outside of what they already prepped so, or read or whatever.
0: I mean, if we talk about gaming in a bubble without taking into consideration life outside of it, no, we should be doing what engages the characters and the players and just roll with it. But sometimes you have to take into consideration the stuff that is happening outside of the game, Mm -hmm. uh, because that's going to affect what people bring to the table. And if the GM is in the middle of trying to find a new place to live, a new, you know, Pack up everything they own, move it to a new place, get the new house settled and everything like that. That's, that's a lot of work that oh, takes yeah. away from your ability to plan and create this game that we're all going to be playing. Yeah. You want to have respect for each other's time and the level of effort you can put into it.
2: Just as a side note. I remember, and I was not prepared to throw this out as a recommendation, but um, (laughs) I seem to remember there was a product that came out around the time that the Undermountain Adventure came out that reworks the beginning so that it starts in Skullport, which I think is actually kind of interesting because if you start in Skullport, you already have people that are living in this hive of scum and villainy that is on the third level of Undermountain. So there's almost more of an impetus to like that is our environment that's nearby us. Yeah. So I yeah, would almost be interested ins- in trying it that way.
0: Yeah, instead of being outsiders exploring down to Skullport, your residents of Skullport exploring around it. That's that's pretty interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. But I can't remember the name of it. though. just go on <laughs> DM's Guild and type Skullport, and stuff will come up.
0: <laughs> Probably a lot of stuff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank goodness, um, after some of the hectic, chaotic stuff that's been going on in you know my household and family lately, we actually did get to play a game, and I got to run a game, and I'm excited. Yeah.
0: Speaking of GMs with stuff happening outside of the game.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we finally got back to our uh, Marodi Empire game, and the party when we left off was on the Isle of Midnight, which is run by a Hag's Coven. Uh they have a mission to sink the island, to kill the chimera that is there and to rescue Kazina's sister, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was def- that was definitely not the order Kazina was was planning on it. And I mean, we wouldn't want to sink the island first no, anyway, no, but No,
2: probably not. That that's probably the worst option to take first. Um
0: Yeah, although although Marin might have decided to go that
2: route start. <laughs> Uh, Where we left off, they were about to talk to what the quickling that recruited them identified as probably the friendliest of the hags. She was a wood hag. She offered us tea. (laughs) She did, actually. As they were, you know, we we picked up right from where they rested, and they go walking towards the hag, and they run into a weeping trance, which is... Basically like a regular one, except that it exudes sap from its face that causes acid damage. And I don't know, I had some fun playing him because I just, one, I like doing the the traditional ant, you know, slower talking thing. Yeah. And also I kind of wanted to convey that, you know, the tree guy isn't really bad and he really likes the wood hag. You know, like I kind of yeah. wanted to like loop some of that backstory into it a little bit more. They negotiated with the wood hag, and she gave them a bundle of sticks to break or burn that would um, cause her to sever her ties with the coven to weaken the night hag, who is ruling over all of them. And currently that night hag has at least Kazina's sister um, as a hostage and is slowly trying to turn her into a hag to replace the other two hags in her coven because she is really mean and also very ambitious. Night hag. Yeah, night hags are notoriously probably not the nicest of any of the hags. (laughs) Yeah. When you actually trade souls to fiends, that's kind of even going above and beyond the usual uh, hag behavior there. They decided, after they had met with the wood hag, what they wanted to do next. They know the um, Temple of Hecate has the chimera in it that they need to kill. They know where the lair of uh, Mother Heart Stopper is, who is the night hag. They could have gone to talk to the other, uh, the other hag, which is a blood hag. So she is tangentially related to vampires. Or they also know where the tunnel is underneath the island where they can place the pearl that will sink the island. Obviously, again, as Ange mentioned, probably not the thing you want to do before you have <laughs> other things done. So they opted to skip trying to talk to the other hag because they determined if they get one hag to back out of the coven, they no longer have three hags. So that breaks all of those extra abilities that the night hag has whether or not they talk to the other hag. Yep. So they headed to the night hag's lair and the night hag's lair was this underground area with all of these sticky gooey fungus things growing on the walls. Oh, also on the way there across the island, they did run into dream versions of themselves which they chose not to interact with for some reason. I don't know why they wouldn't <laughs> want to interact with with, you know, Haggard-looking versions of themselves that were traveling through the mist, but they get into the Night Hags' lair, and um, the first thing that they encountered was um, these swirly, you know, wraith-like beings, which turned out to be dream wraiths, um, which are wraiths that can, you know, knock you out and suck the life force out of you while you are sleeping. The dream wraiths work for the Night Hag, and they were guarding Kazina's sister. So the fight with the dream wraiths—I would say that was a pretty rough fight.
0: It was a hard fight. It was not easy. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it this way: it was hard enough that Marin burned through most of his fighter abilities, and then insisted, despite the fact that we were in a <laughs> Night Hags lair, that we needed to take a short rest. Yes, like, dude, we were told. We we know that the Night Hags gonna know we we separated. Kazina's sister from her prison.
2: That was the interesting turn of events because there was a, a a stone that was like scrolling in Sylvan and had a rune on it that was basically the transformation stone that was changing Kazina's sister into a night hag. And Marin, who was strangely for being our fighter, the best person with Arcana in the group. <laughs> Basically used his Arcana skill to learn how to disarm the the, uh, transformation stone. But I mentioned, based on the check that he made with Arcana, that as soon as you break this connection, Mother Heartstopper is going to know that you broke this connection. So the Night Hag will know you are in her lair as soon as you break this connection. So he breaks the connection. Everyone kind of agreed on breaking the connection and getting Kazina's sister safe because... Nobody wanted to risk leaving her in there another however long it was gonna take.
0: Yeah, I just don't think I think Marin was the only one agreed that we were taking a short rest.
2: Yes, but then after that, Marin decided they needed to take a short rest. There were a few questions about that, but Marin decided he was gonna take a short rest, sits down, gets comfortable. And about 10 minutes later, this was really fun because the night hag can go ethereal. I wasn't sure how to use this ability. It's a fun ability, but it doesn't come up that often unless you're just having the villain run away. Or you can have her walk through a wall and plop herself right in the middle of the PCs while they're trying to take a short rest.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now, if the previous fight was a tough fight, this one was on the track to becoming a TPK.
2: Yes, because she is not just a night hag. She is a greater night hag. She was doing quite a bit of damage just with her claws, but also she got off. She has a spell that will put people to sleep and do psychic damage to them when they fall asleep.
0: In her first full round of combat, she was still connected to the coven.
2: Yeah, the first round of combat, she was connected to the coven. Ivy fired off a uh, scorching ray through the bundle of sticks to make sure that they burned. So that did cut off. um, There are two things that that cut off. One, it cut off all of her extra spell-like abilities that she got for being part of the coven. But the other thing it did is she's no longer a legendary creature, so she doesn't get legendary actions anymore. Which is probably good in retrospect. <laughs> because this fight still went pretty rough there. Um, like I said, she she used that one spell that knocked people unconscious and did psychic damage twice, and I think she got like two members of the party each time. So we were just kind of going around robin with people waking each other up.
0: I believe at the Point Mazrum saved our bacon. <laughs> Both Marin and Kazina were down. Mm-hmm. Ivy was doing what she could, but she's a sorceress. So
2: do not stand too close to the, the person doing melee damage. <laughs> now, what was really fun was this was going really rough for them. They're trying to keep themselves awake. You know, they're falling, you know, falling asleep and losing turns and taking psychic damage. And then having other people using turns to wake people up and Mazram, our cleric, cast Banishment on the hag. Everybody just suddenly kind of like exhaled in that moment when she failed her save against the Banishment. And I even remembered to make sure that I rolled it with advantage because of her uh, her magic resistance.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think all of us let out a collective sigh of relief at that moment.
2: There was a little bit of a discussion because if Mazrum just maintains his concentration for a minute, she would be banished back to Hades because she is not from this plane of existence. The problem is they don't know if there's someone else she might be connected to. They don't know if she's going to come after Kazina's sister still. So they kind of want to finish the job.
0: Not to mention Kazina kind of swore an oath to the Wood Hag?
2: Oh yes, that that is true too. Yeah. Uh, Kazina swore an oath to get rid of uh, Mother Heartstopper, and when I say oath, that is with a capital O.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Which means that if Kazina breaks that oath, she will fall under some kind of curse.
0: Kazina was kind of a you know on a mission. You know, my sister's <laughs> in there. Give me my sister back.
2: Because the combats were a lot of, you know, beat up and go and back and forth, we got the banishment done. I counted out a few rounds for everyone to make preparations, do healing, cast some spells here and there. And then I told them, next round, we're going to start with the night hag's turn and everyone can take their held action the second that uh, Mazram quits concentrating. But by this point, it was like 1130 at night. So (laughs) that was our cliffhanger. (laughs) I enjoyed that session. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. There was a little bit of questionable tactics going on with trying to take the, uh, <laughs> the rest when, when the party did, but...
0: Well, and Marin also just... He constantly bitches about <laughs> us having to do these things. Like, he bitched during the entire mystical, magical journey through <laughs> the plains, because why are we doing this? Because <laughs> we need to rescue Ivy's ancestor <laughs> now we're on He's like why are we doing this because we need to rescue kazina's sister and do what i boss told us
2: yeah i i think the whole thing with um with Marin picturing him you know with Marin actually being a knight is he still has his dreams of i'm going to be told to attack a very clearly bad enemy across the battlefield and it'll be very easy to, to determine. Yes. And it won't be skulking through places and making hard decisions about things. It'll just be charge and kill the bad people. <laughs> and that's not been how his life has turned out so far.
0: And what I loved is he kept having these arguments about the, ha- you know, especially like the wood hag and the mm-hmm. treants with the weeping acid face. They're bad. They're obviously bad. And it's like, Maren, look, look at Casino. <laughs> look at me. I'm a tiefling. There are entire people in your culture of Dragonborn who say the exact same thing about me because of the way I look. Oh, that's not the same thing at all. Not the same thing at all. Oh, Marin.
2: And ironically, (sighs) outside of the Marodi Empire, there are people that look at Dragonborn that way because they view everyone in the Marodi Empire as potential invaders, too.
0: (laughs) I mean, with certain reason.
2: yes. Yes. (laughs) That's not not that, you know, the, the Sultan and certain members of the Ruling Council of Dragons haven't given them reason to think that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was very nice to get back to that campaign. I had yes. a lot of fun running that. And, hey, speaking of campaigns, we spent a lot of time talking about the games that we're playing. But let's switch it up and talk about games that we played as tense. We both learned a lot from the games that we've run over the years. And... Today is a good day to reminisce about those campaigns. So first off, let's talk about the difference in our experience in running D&D campaigns. So, Ange, how long have you been running D&D?
0: The first time I ever ran anything was in 2005. Um, It was December of 2005, and I ran a one-shot of D&D for a small weekend game gathering. Um, So... To, to put this in perspective, there had been a local gaming convention called Unicon. It was basically short for Upstate New York Convention, but they had a unicorn as a symbol because Unicon. Anyway, <laughs> I was really looking forward to this. I would attended in 2003 and 2004. Was super excited about 2005 coming up, and I want to say less than a month before the convention guy who controlled the purse strings canceled the convention. He basically felt like the people who were actually running it weren't doing their job because they were splitting their attention between his convention and when they were going to be running in February, which was going to be its 10th anniversary convention. And because they weren't giving his, him their complete undivided attention, he threw a temper tantrum and canceled the convention. And I was so upset by this that the weekend that convention was supposed to happen, I held AngCon, which was basically a day at my house playing games. And I ran a uh, one shot of d I spent way too much time on the characters, but I made that d My group has always been decidedly polygamerous, though, so I... Have run other campaigns before I actually ran d and D campaign, though. So, what about you, Jared?
2: So, I tried running a few encounters maybe in 1984. Like I, I was trying to piece together how to actually run things from, you know, the, what I had read, and it wasn't going real well. I kind of talked about that in some other episodes where I finally watched like a friend's brother run a game, and I thought I'm not going to run it like that, and that's how I figured out how to run it. <laughs> but 85 was the first time I started actually running any games that were strung together in like a consistent campaign. So what edition did you use for your first campaign?
0: My first actual campaign that I attempted was using 3.5. Now I say attempted because that game got one session and then never really got off of the ground for a variety of reasons. The first D&D related campaign that ever actually went anywhere was Veterans of the Gauntlet from 2011, and I used Pathfinder, but I still count it and you can't make me leave it out.
2: <laughs> so the first edition that I used to run a game, it was 1985, but I actually was using the Magenta basic set, which is the older, you know, the one that came out, I think in 81, because the next one came out in like 80. 80- three i think <laughs> so i used the magenta basic set for that i didn't stay with that too long i got the the expert set for the Beckme edition which was the 83 version you know back then i wouldn't even notice if those two weren't compatible because there was crap that i was pulling out of there and using an D when i was running it later <laughs> on so who knows i don't know but yeah that was Ostensibly, the addition that I was uh, running when I first uh, started running my campaigns: <laughs> So what's the longest campaign that you've run?:
0: Definitely veterans of the Gauntlet. So the characters started at fifth level with a flashback to first level when they all met. Mm-hmm. The whole idea was that these were all people who served in this mercenary company in service of the country of Brayland during the last war. Mm-hmm. The campaign started when they all came back to Sharn for the five-year anniversary of a major battle that the, the company had won for Braylon. Mm-hmm. And the way I set this up is uh, had everyone you know make their characters. We all got to know who each other's characters were. And then we started with them all arriving at their former comrades' tavern in Sharn to meet up together again. And it was perfectly awkward Because this is the start of the campaign. They don't really know... Like They all know on the paper who everyone is playing, Mm -hmm. but they don't really know each other's characters. They don't really know their connections to each other. So it had that perfect, awkward feeling that reunions sometimes have. Mm -hmm. And then I immediately flashback to them as first-level characters on the road to the valley where Brayland was currently fighting Seer. And they have this whole you know, thing where they got sent off to stop this device that was messing with magic in the valley and preventing all of the magical casters for their side to do their thing and all this. So after that, they immediately, like, knew who each other were, they knew, like, what they felt about each other, and they easily settled into, like, oh, these are old friends that I've had forever. You know, I do say so myself. That was a brilliant start (laughs) for a campaign. I want to say we ran it off and on for about seven years. I want to say the last time we played that campaign was 2018. And I took them from 5th level to 11th level and pretty much across the breadth and width of Eberron. They did most of their adventuring up in Corvair, but did take on a quest that took them to Argonessen. They also took a quest that took them up to Ice White Island. Uh, and they had quests we never got to that were going to take them to Zendrick and Sarlona Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I did not know how to properly plan an epic (laughs) campaign. Basically, everyone got a quest assigned to them by the prophecy, and we only made it through about half of them (laughs) before various things fell apart because one of the things you learn when you run a long-term campaign is Sometimes your players come and go. And if you have certain plot elements tied to specific characters and the player leaves, do you lose the character? Do you lose that plot element? How do you handle this? And by the time we stopped, I was a little burnt out on running Pathfinder. We'd had some issues with various players switching characters Mm -hmm. and all of that. And just it had kind of lost its momentum. My players... From that game that I still play with would probably happily pick it back up again and we talked about it we just can't easily translate it into fifth edition because several of the characters were very specific Pathfinder classes Mm -hmm. like a gunslinger a cavalier an oracle and a witch and I gotta tell you that witch is probably the hardest to translate
2: yeah there's
0: you know, maybe you could get away with Warlock, but it still doesn't work.
2: Yeah, because like the spellcasting feel of a Warlock is different than Pathfinder Witches.
0: Yeah, there's nothing like a Pathfinder Witch in 5th edition.
2: I'm really curious to see because I know Kobold um, Press has a Witch class coming out. So I'll be curious to see how that one feels when it comes out. Also, plug Season Fodari's uh, Gunslinger is really nice. I do really like that one.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the, the gauntlets will, will ride again and <laughs> finish their last quest. I mean, when we left them, the wizard who had been hit with a insanity spell in their last fight cast a teleport to take them home and failed the roll, so they basically <laughs> got scattered across the <laughs> landscape. So... This is something some of the players have probably picked up on in the depth of Zendric game, but it's in the same universe that the veterans <laughs> of the gauntlet are, because uh, I've reused some of the same NPCs mm-hmm. I've basically those characters are out there.
2: <laughs> you talked about like this established group getting scattered, and I immediately thought of like back in the uh, '80s when the X-Men were in Australia, and they go through uh-huh. the Siege perilous, and they all end up going to different parts of the world and not remembering who they were to begin with. and Yep. Yep, yeah, we're, we're old X-Men nerds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what about your oldest campaign, or your longest campaign? I
2: think both of them were probably around the three-year-long mark, although I think one of them probably had a lot more hours devoted to it because it was my middle school high school game. During school, we would play like a couple hours on the weekend, possibly a few hours both days on the weekends. Over the summer, we would probably play multiple days during the week.
0: I guarantee you, even though I ran my campaign between 2011 and 2018, you probably had more hours (laughs) devoted to your game because we would play in short. Four to six month spurts. Yeah. Before switching to another game. And another GM.
2: That middle school. At least it started out in middle school game. That ran from when I first started to uh, DM. All the way up until. Around the time that I got the Forgotten Realms box set. Because that original campaign was set in like. Vaguely alternate universe earth. Because I wasn't really that sure about world building. So it was like. I think I know things. I realize now I knew like maybe (laughs) 5% of what I actually thought I knew about the the time period that I was doing there, but it didn't matter. And we had a cleric, a wizard, and an elf. That was the campaign where I started them (laughs) on the island with the vampire, where they were just like running around and fighting wolves and bats and waiting for the sun to come up when they were first level, because I was terrible. And... (laughs) But that campaign ran for years, and it ended with that I decided there's going to be this huge magical plague, and it's going to kill everyone that is magical or supernatural. You know, They're either going to stop it, or they're going to have to figure out how to get all these people away, and they partially stopped it, but it was still killing some people. They found a way to open this huge portal to start moving all of the magical people, like the elves and the dwarves and all of that. And... In the end, they find out that they're moving all of them to the Forgotten Realms because, you know, in that first, you know, in the old gray box that they're talking about how all these other, you know, fantasy worlds are connected to the Forgotten Realms and people show up there from other campaign settings all the time. So it was like, yep, that's where everyone's going to go. Didn't really play. We played the characters a little bit in the realms, but not for very long. And that was just kind of like, it felt like a natural kind of ending, like all right, you've helped all of these people that would have died otherwise find a new world and now you're going to settle in this new place and, you know, right off into the sunset. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and the other campaign, which, you know, was three some years, this one was wild because this is when I was working nights and 12-hour shifts. So oh. what would happen is I would have like three days in a row when I would work, but then I would have like days off and I would spend ridiculous amounts of time prepping. I don't know if anyone remembers the dungeonie software for making maps, but I would print out ridiculous battle maps and spend way too much money on printer ink just so that I can print <laughs> out these, these maps for all of these things. And then I would try and tape them together. By the way, gaming paper came out not long after this, and boy, was I happy for that. But... <laughs> i will just draw with markers that's fine but um that campaign started off in the dale lands and the forgotten realms It traveled to the other side of the continent and back again we went from having two people to having a whole bunch of other people um you know two of my kids joined the campaign in the summer and when they were off of school you know we had one person leave and another person came in and two other people joined towards the end when we were wrapping it up we had a sunday where we played for like 8 hours and it was like the culmination of the whole thing and we actually got the like the one player that had left and hadn't, you know, been there for a couple of years came back to play his character. My kids, you know, ran their characters for that for that day. They hadn't been playing for a little while because they were back in school. So it was really the kind of this neat like getting everyone back together for this one final push after all of this, you know, after these three years of running this campaign.
0: Getting the band back together.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. It was great. It felt nice, Um, and I believe they got up to about 13th level, and I I believe the wildest thing we did was I decided to have a Spelljammer arc, so they ended up (laughs) in Spelljammer, out in Wild Space for a little bit of that campaign. Not for too long, but just enough to say, hey, here's a concept. You want to get on a ship and just sail to another planet? (laughs) Okay, so here's one for you. What's the shortest campaign you've ever run, or at least intended to run?
0: I have a couple of intended campaigns that never made it past one session. Um, The first was well before 2011 when I started the Veterans Veterans of the Gauntlet, and it was a 3.5 game that I kind of intended to be an ongoing campaign, but I didn't really plan anything other than print out some. It was between RPGA and Adventurer's League, so they might have been RPGA Mm one-shots. But I printed out a bunch of them, uh, and I was gonna, like, let's make characters, and I'll play, and, like, it was supposed to be, like, this offshoot of my main group that we were going to play this game, but there were one I hadn't really planned very well and didn't really know what I was doing as far as running a campaign goes. And we had some issues with the makeup of that group. There was one player who was nominally a friend of another player. And, well, eventually that friendship kind of fell apart quite hard. And there were reasons. There were reasons why that one happened. (laughs) Something similar happened with my oldest niece's friends. I had run a short masks campaign for them. And then they asked me if we could do D anD D, so I put together a campaign using I can't remember the name of the book, but it's by Sly Flourish, and it's basically a series of oh. loosely connected adventures.
2: Yeah, the the ruins of Grundle Root.
0: Something like that. Um, yeah. and I we didn't actually play anything out of that because I have to set things up. So I set <laughs> up a um uh an adventure where they were competing. Uh, there's common themes run through my campaigns uh they were competing to basically gain a sponsorship of the nobility to go off and do adventurly things in far parts of the the realm uh and they actually all really enjoyed that but they got busy with school and we never got back to it
2: so i wanted to, my answer i was going to set an example here because we have often said a session zero counts as a real session that's part of your campaign <laughs> So my shortest campaign was having a session zero and realizing the session zero didn't go well, and then trying to have a session zero for the same campaign again, and then not playing the campaign. <laughs> 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 so we were going to um, play uh, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, which is a heavily Greek mythology uh, influenced game that came out from uh, it's actually a company founded by some of the people that worked for. BioWare that worked on the original Baldur's Gate that formed a tabletop RPG company. And they made this game. I was really interested in it. You don't have backgrounds in it so much as you have destinies. And these destinies are meant to tie you more directly into the story. Some of my friends kind of misunderstood what some of those epic destinies actually meant. Because, like, when they saw Demigod, they were thinking, oh, I am a half deity so I can choose any one of these deities to be, you know, a child of. And what it actually meant is in the story, there is a deity that Epic Destiny would have been the child of. So in other words, you're actually being the child of that one specific god that is already part of the story. Gotcha. When he saw stuff like that, he didn't like it because he felt like it wasn't reform enough. We had other players that were fine with that. I mean, From my point of view, I kind of like it because the Epic Destinies basically say, if you're going to choose this destiny, there are going to be three or four parts of the campaign that are side quests that deal directly with your destiny. And it is a nice way for the DM to have players customized into that campaign where the DM doesn't have to take a published campaign and shoehorn stuff into it that isn't already part of the campaign. But he didn't like it because he felt it was too pre-planned. Honestly... My opinion is it says destiny, so maybe some of it is going to be pre-planned. Yeah. And it's not like it's telling you you must do this thing exactly, but it is saying you'll be this person's child or your chance to get this epic weapon is going to be to get this particular weapon. In a lot of cases, it it wouldn't say you have to take a longsword, but whatever the epic weapon is, it's going to be in this cave after this trial, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the players who who say that any form of metagaming by other players is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, seen as kind of a metagaming. Oh, I have this destiny, which means you have things that you're going to have happen to my character.
1: Mm-hmm. How
0: dare you? Where it's like, I would love that. You know, you want to have cool things happen for your character, to your mm-hmm. character, and, you know, you have to have a certain degree of metagaming to put those things in place, but there's, I don't know, I don't i don't know that it's as much of a problem as it used to be, but there's still players who get upset when they think that there's certain engineering happening mm-hmm. to put things in place for characters and story to happen in certain ways.
2: Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I think stuff like that is much better when you agree to it as the framework of the campaign you're going into. Right. Like, if you get to playing and the DM starts telling you, you have no options here, you must do this exact thing, that's completely different. But if you start a campaign and you all agree, this is the framework for the campaign, you know, that's why you have a session zero.
0: Like, I'm talking about the the, the players who like, oh, this is obviously the plot the GM has planned. I don't want to be railroaded, so I'm going to fight tooth and nail against it.
2: Oh, yeah, and (sighs) I've had people in Adventure Paths before where it's like, this is the story of the Adventure Path, and they get this like sly look on their face, like, but what if I decided not to do this? And it's like, you decided to play this adventure path. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your happy butt needs to leave the table.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Everyone else here is playing this, though. Bye.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's just something. Once you establish what you're doing at the beginning of a campaign, you know, yes, you should check in. But try not to actively subvert your poor DM.
0: <laughs> although I think the the lesson learned from your Odyssey of the Dragon lord's session zeroes <laughs> is that when you can see that the session zero isn't working right, it's okay to lay that one to bed and move on to something else
2: definitely and you know I've had great campaigns with those same players I've been in other games with those players. I don't necessarily agree with some of their concern well it's, mainly it was one person, but you know if they're not going to have fun then we're not going I'm not going to Try and shove it a square peg into a round hole, you know. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on something that we hadn't discussed as one of our questions, just because you had kind of offhand said this, but you mentioned that you had multiple campaigns start with a similar thing, and I wanted to ask you about that. Have you noticed any recurring themes that you have in your campaigns, either how they start or something you always include, or anything like that?
0: Well, there was the, the, like I mentioned, the competition that I set up for the kids to basically have their party chosen to be one sponsored by the kingdom. And then there was the recent Depths of Zendric campaign where they all basically, you know, uh, Sharn's next top adventurer, uh, where they all competed to basically be chosen to go on the, the, the expedition to Zendrick. You know, definitely that. I veer away from D&D when I start talking about other themes I've seen myself repeat. I learned I have to be careful with amusement parks and <laughs> uh, carnivals because I had a player go, oh, I've played this adventure before. When it was an adventure, I was making up on the fly, <laughs> but he had previously played another one that had a carnival in it. So I'm like, oh, I got I to gotta be careful with that. And... There were several, several supers campaigns that started, and I'll talk a little bit about this a little further on, uh, campaigns that started with the players developing their powers as part of the beginning of the campaign. Something happened, and now you have superpowers. What do you do? You know, And I, I did that at least three times.
2: <laughs> I've had a couple where I started the PCs in the middle of a fight, And had them explain to me what went wrong when they were attempting to do something. (laughs) And I didn't even really think about it. But I had one of the players go, do you just really like starting campaigns this way? And I hadn't even thought that I had done it more than once. But it was something (laughs) that I I had done. because, I think part of it was after session zero, once everybody was kind of okay with how their characters knew each other and how they're in this group. I didn't even want it to feel like okay. All of that stuff that we agreed on in, in session zero just happened. I kind of wanted it to be okay. All that stuff happened like months ago. How did you get into this predicament with one another? You know what I mean? And yeah, um, I mean it was it was fun. But yes, once you start realizing that you're doing something that somebody else can identify, it's kind of like oh okay, never mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I have a story. There was a guy. Uh, me and a friend used to play with quite a bit. Uh, He would run superhero games kind of based loosely in the Marvel universe, and he had some tropes that he would consistently repeat (laughs) with his games to the point that when my friend Alana and I were sitting in the theater watching Captain America Winter Soldier and Cap and Black Widow go to the lost World War II Base and go into the bunker, we looked at each other and were like <laughs> it's one of his games we've been there before because if it wasn't if it wasn't a bunker a, like a lost <laughs> world, world War two bunker or base that was we, we discovered and found it was some sort of concert event or some sort of hoity toity social event <laughs> it was like it was one of those three things so it, it's it's one of the reasons why i, I I try and be very careful of it myself, uh, and I caution all other GMs, pay attention to the tropes you use, because they're comfortable. You will repeat them, and you (laughs) want to make sure you, you, you don't do that without realizing you're doing it.
2: It was interesting, because even though they were very different stories, when I was running the Eberron game for your group, and I was running the Streets of Avalon game, they were both investigating, and every so often I would start doing something and I would stop myself because I was like, that is exactly how I started dropping clues for <laughs> this thing and this game. The funny thing about that was Bob was in both groups. So I'm sitting here going, I can't do that again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bob wouldn't noticed.
2: Have you ever run a campaign based on a published series?
0: Yes. Um, Lady Zylena's Adventures was essentially... Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Tristan, who runs the City of Cows campaign that I love and adore and talk about often, confessed that while he had been running 5e since it came out, he had never actually played in a campaign. (laughs) So he asked if I would run one. I got everything set up with the players all being recruited by this dwarf noblewoman, i.e. Lady Xylena, in Waterdeep to adventure for her acting as their patron. We played through a first session where they all met her for dinner and then got asked to go help do a thing and kind of cemented the group together. And then between that session and the next session, I discovered that Waterdeep Dragon Heist was out. <laughs> so I picked up the book and realized it would fit really well with that group. I had to do a little bit of shifting because they were already... like I, I, I played the first session and then let them level the second and Waterdeep Dragon Heist technically starts with the characters at first level, so I had to do a little bit of of shifting there. But in the end, it worked out really well. We skipped the second chapter, I believe, which is all faction quests, because none of my players had any interest in faction quests. There was a lot of stuff at the end that we kind of skipped, because basically once we got going... I had some issues with the way the party interacted with each other. All the players are friends. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves each other, adores each other. In-game, some of the characters hated (laughs) each other. And I find that really irritating and not fun to run. And ultimately, I'm like, you guys have absolutely no reason to stick together, (laughs) especially after you got the Dragon Horde. Because even with them giving most of it back to the city of Waterdeep, they still are now rich. So you guys have no reason to adventure together. Why Why would you keep going? So we basically ended the campaign after they they got the horde. <laughs> and I did mix in some additional adventures that I made up to kind of be filler and a little more connected to Lady Zylena and all that. But ultimately, I ran Dragon Heist for my players.
2: That was actually one... That I got to play in as a player, mm-hmm. and I don't want to spoil anything for people that haven't run it. But there's a thing that comes out of a well, and my monk said that I want to shove it, but I want the shove to look like a drop kick, and I rolled higher than the thing coming out of the well, so it went back into the well, and that was the best I have ever felt about a character at first level in my entire life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Oh my goodness. Okay, the interesting thing was when I was trying to play like um you know AD&D at first or you know basic D&D, I could not make heads or tails out of most adventures. The only adventure that really made a lot of sense to me was Isle of Dread, but I also didn't quite know how to get, you know, the PCs from first level to whatever level that starts out at, so I think third. Because, you know, at the time, it does not occur to you, I could just tell everyone to be third level. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) I mean, to be completely fair, I have the adventure my friend Tom ran, where we sat there, spent the afternoon making characters. I want to say they were second level. They might, I don't know what level they were. He grabs the module, we start it, and we die instantly at the entrance because he grabbed an eighth level dungeon. And we were whatever, (laughs) third level or whatever. And his response to this was, oh, that sucks. Well, we could make new characters and try a different one. (laughs) We were teenagers.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah, I think, though, the first, um, like, published campaign, like, you know, modules that were strung together to form a larger storyline that I ran... For D&D was the DLE Dragonlance series, which was In Search of Dragons, Dragon Magic, Dragon Keep, which is kind of an infamous series of adventures because there is some strange shit that happens in those modules that doesn't necessarily feel super Dragonlance-like. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like there's some Dragonlance moments in there, but there's also some, I'm not sure Rick Swan wasn't partaking of something weird when he was writing this, (laughs) moments too. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, that was the first, like, uh, thing that I had actually run and I sprinkled in some, uh, of the short adventures that were in like the adventure anthologies that came out for Dragonlance at that time too. I ran Rise of the Rune Lords until I got a TPK. (laughs) (laughs) I ran Council of Thieves until like the, I think, I want to say the fourth adventure. And there was kind of a way that it looked like you could just end it there instead of doing the last two adventures. And that's what we did. I've run Lost Mine of Phandelver multiple times, but one time I used it as the lead-in to Storm King's Thunder instead of the low-level intro that they have in Storm King's Thunder because I kind of liked it better than that. And I ran Storm King's Thunder because Giants. Like, there was no way I was not going (laughs) to run that campaign.
0: (laughs) You got a thing for Giants.
2: I do. I, I don't know what it is, but I do. So do you have a campaign that changed the way you run games?
0: It's not so much the campaign that changed me, but me deciding to change that affected the campaign. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I had done several superhero campaigns where the concept is this thing happens and everyone develops superpowers and the players learn what their superpowers are as they they advance through the game. And I did one of these where they were all college students at boston university and i think we played maybe three sessions before i flaked out on it because i wasn't it did it wasn't clicking for me i kind of mm-hmm. backed out about it this was actually a similar concept to what i ran for my very first campaign i ever ever ran which was that mutants and masterminds second edition i think it was where they basically developed powers and mm. that one actually ran for quite some time and i did well with it but when I tried to redo it with a different twist, it kind of failed. <laughs> and then, like, a year later, I'm like, let's do this again. Okay, it's you're set in Cleveland, and there's this, span, you know, like, t- uh, kind of a Spanish flu that went around, which was weird because it hit all the young people instead of the old and the, the infirm. Little did I know, in 2020, this would feel a little
1: <laughs>
0: prescient to me. Anyway... They all developed powers and they they figured out what their powers were and they were all really, really loving the campaign and I was doing okay with it. And then they started talking about epidemiology because <laughs> they started putting the numbers together of the number of people they had witnessed with superpowers, the number of people that had been sick, how many people were going to develop powers and And like, oh, this is going to be the collapse of society, um, blah, 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 because all of these reasons, and people (laughs) in power are going to get a hold of people who can be nuclear weapons by themselves, and and I panicked. (laughs) I panicked, and I dropped that campaign like a hot potato, (laughs) because I did not know how to handle... I was trying to go for some low-level heroes BS with the players developing powers (laughs) and trying to live their lives, and that was not where that campaign was headed.
2: Yep. (laughs) So
0: I took a step back and I'm like, I don't want to be the GM who can't run a campaign. I don't want to be that person. I want to try and be able to run a campaign and I am obviously failing at this. So I took a step back and started looking at D&D, Pathfinder, Eberron, all of this. And that was when I came up with the concept for Veterans of the Gauntlet, where I planned out what the first session was going to be, and basically like did much better, maintaining my control of what was going on. Because basically, I, you know, I did a proper session zero. I planned things out, and I stuck to it. It basically helped me find the balance between planning and improv. Because I can do improv really well, Mm -hmm. but campaigns will die without proper planning for me. I need to know where things are going and how things fit together. And if I don't do that, and I'm not saying I have to plan a whole campaign up front, but I need to have that framework of what's happening and what's going on to run a proper campaign. If I don't have that, I, I flounder and... I lose the thread of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Even when the player, my players still, still talk about that supers campaign that I flaked on hardcore. (laughs) Like they still talk about it to this day.
2: Uh, I get it though, because anytime somebody starts feeling like they know more about your campaign than you do, it's like, I can't run this now. And it's funny (laughs) because we, we usually talk about that with like, IPs like, you know, like Lord of the Rings or, you know, even Forgotten Realms or things like that. But it's like anything that someone at the table feels like they're going to question the reality you are presenting, it gets intimidating. That I had a game where I was describing a house and the setting was like a, you know, general Norse type thing. And they started like contradicting how the house would be set up because you know they knew exactly how you know the norse would build their houses and i'm sitting here going like i don't want to be here anymore <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to argue with them they're probably right i could just say i'm the gm but at the same time it was like
0: one of the guys i game with his name is woody and we we have joked for a very long time that woody lives in the woodyverse
1: <laughs> because
0: i learned a lot from having him in my games because he will start thinking he understands what's going on and come up with these absolutely wild <laughs> theories of what is actually happening. So I learned very early on to not put too much stock in that. But this was more than just Woody deciding that this is the this was the other players going, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I just hadn't like thought about it in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it was just like, oh. Oh, they're, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. This, would, this could be the way things go. If that's not the campaign I planned on running, and I don't know what to do. And
2: So I think the ones that probably changed how I run things the most, first one would probably be that Dragonlance campaign that I ran because that was the first published adventure that I ran, and I learned a couple things from it. First off, it starts at a fair, and that actually taught me that I really loved giving PCs things to do and things to mechanically interact with that wasn't combat mm-hmm. because it was actually fun to have them. Oh, I'm going to be in the wrestling competition or I'm going to try axe throwing or, you know, I'm going, I'm going to try the, the pie eating contest. <laughs> like it, it was like revelatory to be like, oh, they can have everyday life things and still roll dice. This could be fun. <laughs> And you don't want to make people roll dice for stupid, inconsequential things. But you know what? Sometimes a person wants to know if they can eat a pie faster than this dwarf sitting next to them.
0: You know, and sometimes if the stakes are low enough, it gives the <laughs> opportunity to let the player, the, the player feel like their character is a badass.
2: Because mm-hmm.
0: they can do this thing really well. Oh, yeah. And I mean, sometimes you should just hand wave. And yeah, you can do that thing because this is what you do. But Mm -hmm. sometimes you also want to roll the dice so they can feel like, (laughs)
2: yes. So, I mean, that was one thing where it just, you know, it it gave you that opportunity to interact with these people at a fair. And you know all of a sudden, that just, like, set off light bulbs in my head. But the other thing that was interesting is, you know, this is Dragonlance. The pregens were set up like the original Dragonlance pregens. It wasn't those characters. It was different characters. But they did have, like, this, this is their history. And in Grand Dragonlance fashion, it was like, this person distrusts this person because of this thing that happened. And the other one was like, this person is in love with this person, but they won't tell them. And I remade those because I didn't like them because they weren't in like the perfect format using all of the Dragonlands material that I had. But after I remade them, I made sure to put, you know, those, you know, all of the background motivations and everything on there because it also, the players had something to latch onto there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like, I don't know what this character is. He's a wizard and trying to save the world or get treasure or both. It was, you know, I'm trying to live up to my mother's legacy because, you know, she was this famous white robed wizard. And now I have, you know, this legacy to uphold and, you know, it was things like that. And it was really neat seeing them all of a sudden have these built in things that they were role playing because they were on those sheets and then it started making me think i want to give them reasons to make this for their own characters and not just these pregens yeah the other one i think was when i ran storm king's thunder because i had softened on this from my 3rd edition days to begin with but in my 3rd edition days i would do the completely obnoxious thing of you know what i would like it better if these rules worked this way so you know maybe i would do this you know the specialty thing where you know Wizards have to, you know, pass the certain test before they can look at books that are in, you know, or look at spells that are in this D&D book or, you know, just trying in and, you know, finding like third party, like, oh, I really like this optional rule and pull it into here. And my idea of this three five, it's not that everybody in my campaigns would agree with me, but everyone was such like nerds about minutia that they would argue why they liked it or didn't like it. But there was never an argument about why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And what I learned in that Storm King's Thunder game is I had one person that was a friend of mine that was in my games a lot and three people that were way more casual. I'm sitting here going, they don't care about all of this stuff. All this is is making the game harder for them, because if I run the game the way it's printed in the book, they can play it and look it up and get it but if i tell them they have to look in these 15 other places or reference this special sheet that i made this could potentially make them go i don't care about this game this is like way too much for anybody to care about and it that again really kind of sunk in where it's like you know what you can have a perfect version of how the rules should work in your brain but unless you have a table of six versions of yourself sitting at that table don't bother with it like there are and i'm not saying don't use house rules or optional rules that's not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is when you realize you have this list as long as your arm about how to make it into your absolutely special perfect campaign and half of it you know you're reworking 50 percent of the rules in the game don't do that <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't make things harder for yourself or your players
2: yeah and a lot of times that stuff that i was thinking was perfect in my head was also stuff that would take forever at the table and it wouldn't play well, and even I wouldn't be having fun even though I thought it was brilliant, so <laughs> let's not do it. Um, what's a campaign that didn't go the way you intended?
0: Probably that that first kids d d campaign, the one where I was using the adventures from Sly Flourish.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I said, the, the first session went fantastic and then we never played again. I think there might have been some social issues Cropping up between some of the kids in that group, which probably made my niece less interested in working to get everyone together for a game. Mm-hmm. It was a relatively large group of eight kids, and I want to say one of them had a falling out with them fairly. Like, because it's my I have three nieces mm-hmm. pseudo nieces. One of them had a falling out with all three of them. And then I want to say the two boys that were in the group started having some issues and just I don't think she was as interested in trying to make it happen anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I could be wrong on that, but I was really excited because I'd gotten the I'd gotten the Sly Flourish book and I knew how this was going to go and mm-hmm. how I could make it work for this group. I mean, I feel like I I redeemed myself with the the Dragon of Icepire Peak that I ran for the youngest niece and her friends, because I've talked about that one. Many times on the show, but that one went much better, even if it was still just as hard to get everyone (laughs) scheduled and together. And they still also had social drama with one of the players who ended up leaving (laughs) the game because they stopped being friends with each other. Oh, God. Middle school drama. Not even middle school drama. It's high school drama, but Uh still it's drama.
2: (laughs) I think my third edition for Atten Realms campaign, I knew because this was a big push in third edition, I was like, you know what, I'm going to use the Shadowvar and, you know, the Netherese that came back as kind of, maybe not the, the villain, but like a major villain. But I wanted them to be recurring. So I had this one ambassador that would show up and talk to them. And he wasn't, you know, being overly like, we're going to come in and take everything over. It was more like, We'll, you know, if you side with us, we'll give you all of these necessary artifacts that we have. And we have all of this, you know, and, you know, being as as nice as he possibly can, trying to get inroads into the uh, Dale lands. One of my players, probably about the third time this ambassador showed up, just killed him. So we shifted from there being like a long-term political tension building into a grand villain into... I just had a, a Shadow Bar army try and invade the Dales because I figured we're just gonna take over now because they killed our ambassador.
0: Yeah, you <laughs> killed the ambassador. It's like okay, <laughs> that's how this is gonna play.
2: That was fun. Also, in the Storm King's Thunder game, the group adopted a kobold. Unfortunately, the kobold was in one. It was in the Dragonborn Thief's backpack when she got hit by a fireball. Oh. oh, oh. So the kobold did not survive and they all felt bad, but they also didn't want to collect the money to have him resurrect. (laughs) So they decided that if maybe they could get enough people to worship him, he would come back as a god. (laughs) Okay. So for part of the campaign, they were doing the primary quest for um, Storm King's Thunder, but they were also trying to spread the good news. Of this uh, kobold who was the, the demigod of uh, reconciled you know, relations between humans and kobolds. <laughs> what they were coming up with <laughs> for <them. laughs> So they were like paying for shrines to be put up in different places. And...
0: <laughs> okay. I mean, by the time they're done, they probably could have afforded the, the resurrection. But <laughs> I mean, it's kind of adorable.
2: Uh uh-huh. <laughs> And it was so weird because it wasn't just, oh, we adopted the kobold. And it wasn't just, oh, the kobold died so we feel bad. It was the next step and going, the way we're going to make up for this is by turning him into a god. <laughs> that, was, that was off the rails, but it was kind of a fun off the rails. <laughs> so we were talking about campaigns, but, you know, as long as we're, get, we're going to talk about running adventures. What's your experience with uh, one-shots?
0: So that, like I said, the very first game I ever, ever ran was a D&D one-shot. And I spent way more time putting the characters together than crafting the adventure. So it was, everyone had fun, which is the point of things, but the adventure was just not anything to write home about. What to write home about was the interactions between the characters were top-notch. I'm still proud of those characters. <laughs> and I've done the occasional one-shot where we needed a pickup game, and I didn't. I wanted to run D and D because it's comfortable and all of that. Um, but I did create one con-worthy D and D game, the Lost Star of Windover. It's an adventure where the queen is dying, and the party has been sent out to determine who should succeed her by finding the artifact, the Star of Windover. Uh, the party contains the queen's second son and some other relevant uh, members of the court as the the PCs. And also the main antagonist is her firstborn son, who supposedly tried to assassinate her. I have run it at Gen Con, Breakout Con. I think I ran it at QCC, but I'm not sure about that. And I've run it at some other smaller events. Uh, A local game store had a Gamer Day, G-A-Y-M-E-R Day. And there's some lgbt themes in the lost star of windover Mm -hmm. so i ran that for that day uh and i love that scenario so much (laughs) it's like i want to try and get it to the point where i can publish it but i don't know if i can disconnect it from the characters and you know that's that's one of the problems i run into with a lot of my one shots they're very tied to the characters Mm -hmm. i've i've put together for the one shot but i love that scenario
2: um actually that Slightly hits on one of the reasons I haven't done a lot of one shots, especially at conventions, is I hate making pre-gen characters for D anD D. I love D anD hate making pre-gens for one shots.
0: See, I kind of, I kind of love it. I, I have those <laughs> characters I made for that, and then a couple of years later, I did another. I did we did two parties worth of characters that I mostly wrote the backgrounds on and. Had a couple of other people work on the stats.
2: I I was going to say, I will give you a slight scary peek inside my brain for why I hate doing it. And it may not be what you think. And that is, if I sit down to make characters, part of my brain does not feel right if I don't go, all right, first I'm going to do a human for every class. Then I'm going to do a dwarf for every class. (laughs)
0: Oh, Jared.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard to shut off when I start doing that. (laughs) So um, I was going to say, though, I do have experience with one shots if you count organized play.
0: I think those count. They're in a weird place between one shot and between campaign Mm -hmm. because it's all about what the player does and how involved the player is Mm -hmm. in the, the organized play.
2: Yeah, and I had never run any organized play until two thousand and eight, and then I was at the the inaugural Gen Con where they started Pathfinder Society.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was actually a lot of fun because some of the things that I learned there, some of the things that I learned there were that it's neat to play the same scenario with different people and see how it evolves, and also there is a certain rewarding feeling when you play something more than once and you start getting a feel for no, this would go so much better if this NPC did this one thing just slightly differently. Yep. Or I should introduce it like this, or I should describe this like this, because that really got a reaction from people. It's really a neat thing to see that as you run something multiple times.
0: That is one of the reasons why I have loved running the Lost Star of Windover at conventions and events, because I get to see what different players do with those characters and the setup. It's mm-hmm. why I love running one-shots for anything, you know, the other things that I run, because I will be completely honest, at cons, I do not gravitate towards D&D, mm-hmm. either running it or playing it. I, I'm i polygamerous. I like a lot of games, so I look for other games to play.
2: We have D&D at home.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go out for D&D. We have D&D at home in the cupboard. <laughs>
2: Um, And also, that kind of plays into because I ran Lost Mines of Vandelver twice for organized play and once for that group that I was running Storm King's Thunder for. So it was fun running Lost Mines of Vandelver more than once. But also, I'm currently doing the review for um, Vandelver and Below. So it's really been interesting to revisit how they changed that first section of the adventure to make it into a longer-term campaign,
1: Ah. because this
2: is one of those things in 5th edition, like, I am super familiar with Lost Money to Fandelver because I've run it three times now. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research.
0: Well, moving into our downtime research, every episode we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts. But it will always be something we think that will enhance your D and D experience. I may have recommended this Instagram before, but I just wanted to give a shout out to Busy Wizard Dice. Um, she is a creator on Instagram and I believe TikTok that makes dice. They're not cheap. I certainly cannot afford a set, <laughs> but I find her videos absolutely delightful and fascinating. In the stuff she is making for other clients or for herself or just to experiment. And um, she was on hiatus for a long time because she had a baby uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, but is now back to making new dice. And so it's, it's very cool seeing the stuff she is making. And I just, I wanted to give a shout out to hers. There'll be a link in the, uh, the show notes to her Instagram. And again, it's Busy Wizard Dice
2: you know the whole craft culture that has sprung up around D&D in the this last decade or so is really fascinating. Yeah. Because like years ago you wouldn't think that you would have people making like custom wooden GM screens or dice holders or you know making their own dice or anything like that and it's just really neat to see all of that that kind of ancillary market to D&D become its own subgenre of crafting there.
0: Yeah, exactly
2: okay so my recommendation is going to be based on one of my favorite comic book runs of the last decade or so and that was gail simone's run on red sonja i am just going to say that keep an eye out because gail simone is writing a red sonja novel that will be coming out and it's really interesting to me because gail simone has never written a novel before she's mainly written for television she's written comic books so I'm really interested in seeing that because her run on Red Sonja was great. However, what I'm talking about today is, as of this recording, is the first issue of Unbreakable Red Sonja number one. And the writer on this Red Sonja run is Jim Zub, who has been the writer on the D&D comics that have been coming out from IDW. So I am really interested to see how he picks up and runs with the character. One of the things that's been really interesting to me is that Gail Simone took a character that a lot of people just look at for wearing a chainmail bikini and looking at this as like a really outdated visual and made her into a character that I thought had an amazing amount of depth and was really fun to read. And I know Jim Zub has done a great job on the D&D comic, so I really want to see what he's doing with the character as well. I don't think I would have trusted just a regular, oh, somebody I'm not familiar with is going to be writing Red Sonia because I don't know if they have that same ability to make me care about the character instead of just, look, it's the redhead in the chainmail bikini. (laughs) It's also neat because in Gail Simone's run, she had a lot of issues where she wasn't wearing the chainmail bikini too, so that was kind of (laughs) cool. All right, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out the
0: gnome cast several gnomes from gnome stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew
2: so Ange, i just wanted to ask you because i i heard senda and phil talking about the stew pot and how it's welded shut now i just you know i thought you would appreciate my little you know contribution to that so i, I just wanted to make sure that you know i'm still not, not in, in any trouble for having that done.
0: Yeah. I did.
2: I did get the thing sealed again.
0: Yeah, and, and then Chris went out and found the, uh, the old stew pot that you guys lost during the party.
2: Natural disaster. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, we have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our, new, our next adventure.